0: is Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and I decided to start a show about being the biracial girl who was living her life, being half and half, never picking a side until one day the world informed me, girl, you're black. I'm from the... listening to Race Capital. And this week on the show, we want to bring attention to the Richmond Book Art Fair that's happening right now at Studio 23 and a really exciting event that's happening tonight. Race Capital is hosting a panel from
1: six to eight at Studio 23, and it's titled Pass the Mic, a panel unearthing our truths. On the panel, we have women media makers from a variety of mediums. The panelists include Maya J. Bodie, a journalist with Blavity,
0: Dr. Sia Neely, Communications Director for Initiatives of Change. She also co-created Accra.Alt, as well as co-founded and helped run the flagship Chale Wate Street Art Festival, the biggest festival of its kind
1: in Africa. We also have WRAR's own independent journalist, Francesca Lee Davis, co-founder of RVA Dirt and co-host of Municipal Mania. Mania, mania, mania. And finally, Cheyenne Varner, a
0: certified professional doula, designer, photographer, and writer in Richmond, Virginia. Today, we've invited
1: Cheyenne and executive director of Studio 23, Ashley Hawkins on the show. So today, in thinking about women in the press, we really wanted to focus on the truths behind making and creating our own spaces. Chelsea, a lot of our listeners might not know about some of the spaces that you've created in addition to the Race Capital show platform. Tell us a little bit about what you do.
0: So in creating space, I realized that I wanted to have my voice heard in a way that It just wasn't before. I was a clinical social worker working a nine to five. And like many other people, I was really impacted by 2015 and the police brutality that I was seeing on the TV of black men and women being shot by the police. I started just using media, mostly social media, because that's what I have access to, right? We all have access to. And sharing my voice, talking about the trauma that I knew from my profession that was happening with those families, as well as with the community watching what was happening and realizing that space needed to be created for these conversations. Space needed to be created just for us to hear about these stories. So I really started with my own Facebook page, Instagram page. I didn't get to Twitter later, but using what I had in my hands, which is my smartphone, to talk about the issues that I wanted to. And from there... I really just created a community space for myself. So as a community facilitator, what that means to me is being able to facilitate the harder conversations so that we can build coalitions in Richmond and being a support to people and the community that are really doing the hard work of putting these messages and stories out there of black and brown communities of Richmond.
1: What was that like for you taking your personal social media and transforming that into something that goes beyond just family and friends?
0: To be really honest, I lost a lot of friends doing this. I went to Chesterfield County Schools. If you've been following along with the show, you've heard me talk a little bit about that. And most of my friends from Chesterfield that happened to be white, white women mostly, I lost a lot of them. But then I gained such a community of folks that kept saying, hey, me too. And this was before the hashtag, right? And folks that said, hey, I can't believe that you're brave enough to even say that out loud. And I got a lot of pushback from people in power, people in other influence, and realizing that I was taking a big chance with my own personal space by doing this. But it was a really important piece because I was connecting with my community.
1: And how did you go about doing that? A big part of engaging with community is attracting followers, right. essentially. How did you take that step from having this being your personal space to being a space where you engage with the community, including people that you might not know face-to-face?
0: So for a long time in 2015 and 2016, when the election seasons was going on campaign, I was showing up everywhere. Uh, honestly, I was. it was more than just social media. I was showing up to the volunteer events. I was showing up to the campaign events. I was showing up to board meetings and I was meeting people and I was sharing my name and that's what we do now we don't always pass out business cards we exchange handles and to be totally honest I, especially on Facebook, I went through and I found people. I found people I thought needed to hear my voice, found people that I wanted to communicate and connect with. And a lot of people out here will just accept your friend request, even if they don't know you. And so many people tell me that, hey, I have no idea how I started following you, but I'm so glad I did. Or I'm sure sometimes people feel the other way. But yeah, it was by being out in the community and then also doing the reach out to follow and support people. I was, I'm a big cheerleader as a big reason why I, I feel like I've been invited to so many rooms is because I don't just show up there. I cheer them more and I support them. I put them on my media and, and promote their brand and promote their voice as well.
1: So a big part of your transition, if you will, was inviting people into your space that you'd created.
0: Yeah, definitely. I didn't even realize what I was doing, to be honest. I just knew that voices needed to be heard, and so the only access I had to media was my own. So if I could do anything by promoting them, then I would. i tag them, throw them up there, take lots of pictures, and really understand the power of that.
1: And the show is just an extension of that.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly
1: tell us a little bit about the work you do at Initiatives of Change.
0: Sure. So Initiatives of Change is a company that's been in the United States for about 30 years now. It's international, and we're over in 50 other countries worldwide. The company came to the United States and landed in Richmond, Virginia, very specifically because we are the formal capital of the Confederacy. And the work of Initiatives of Change is to work with folks in conflict across divides. And here in the good old United States, our divide is around race, especially specifically around our civil war. We are post-conflict. So that means that we work on peacekeeping, trust-building with an anti-racism point of view. So after I decided that clinical work and therapy and billing Medicaid was not for me, I wanted to do, a. I wanted to occupy a different space for change and really went to the media space and I found initiatives of change. They had just received the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation grant from the Kellogg Foundation and they were looking for staff to help carry out the grant. And one of the positions was the narrative change officer. Part of my transition was getting my voice out there. And so I had met the folks over at RVA, Mag. And they found me at an event for the now governor Northam. Actually, I was there in support of him. And Kamala Harris was at that event. She was campaigning for him. And it was really cool because NewsHour was following me around and documenting what I thought about the 2017 election. And RVA Mag saw that I had a camera following me around and that made them interested in me. And we started talking and they said, have you ever thought about writing? And now I have another access of media to reach people. And it was really my writing at RVA Magazine that opened up spaces for people like Initiatives of Change to see me in a different light, to see that I belonged in that space, that I had a voice in that space, as well as that other people were brought or bought into my voice as well. So shout out to all the folks that really were able to see me and support me in that so and here we are now right like after writing for other platforms i've written for several other platforms and been on so many different podcasts it was like well what about my own and carol olson here at wrir was awesome enough to invite me on to women in politics and just start learning how to talk into a mic and be in the studio and Our race capital really sprouted out of the tragedy that happened around Marcus David Peters last year and me wanting a space because nobody else was covering his death and his murder as that as a murder. So I'm really just thankful for WRIR being here. And then magic happened earlier this year. And this wonderful producer came into my life, Kat, and has been just my teammate in this. And that's a big part of creating your own space is that the idea that we're on our own, all of that is a lie. It takes a team. It takes a community to do any of this, to lift each other up. Otherwise, thinking we can do it all our own, we're going to get burned out. And I still do all the time as I learn to balance all of this in my transition. Because I'm, I'll be honest, I also have a consulting firm uh, agency where I do speakings and talks to continue to earn money because I'm a mother. I'm a single mother now. And and the point of my ex and I obviously don't live together now that we've divorced. So it's a different type of life that I'm living and trying to maintain a certain quality of life as well. So creating your own space is not easy, but you're also never alone if you do it the right way. So I'm still trying to do it the right way and I'm really excited to see that other people in the community are jumping out especially women jumping out and, and doing this thing.
1: And today we're going to hear from some of those women.
0: Today we've invited Cheyenne Varner and executive director of Studio 2-3 Ashley Hawkins on the show. Welcome y'all. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here to talk about the book Art Fair over at Studio 23. Yeah, we're really excited. Very cool. So, Ashley, tell us a little bit about the studio, first of all.
2: Sure. Um, So, we're a nonprofit art space located in Scott's Edition at 3300 West Clay Street. It's a giant warehouse building, about 13,000 square feet, and our mission is to give people the space, tools, and education to find that thing they love and make it. Awesome. Okay, and so tell us a little bit about the Book Art Fair. So, this started with Current Books last year, which um, was a sort of subset of Current Art Fair, which They kind of went their separate ways. And the Book Art Fair made a lot of sense with Studio 23 because we provide equipment for printmaking, for bookmaking, for photography, and a space where people can come and share their stories and have community events. So we kind of picked up the mantle. We were fortunate enough to get a grant through Virginia Humanities to help fund the cost of the program. um, And we expanded it for this year. So instead of a one-day Book Art Fair, we're doing a week of programming. So we've had workshops in the few days leading up uh, on bookmaking, on storytelling, on writing writing your six-word memoir, a panel talk this evening um, featuring... Not yours truly, but you over there. Um, Me. You. And another tomorrow evening featuring um, two artists working on concept of rurality, which I think I said correctly, but how culture is communicated in rural communities. Very cool. A preview party Friday night, which is uh, open to the public, ticketed. We'll have snacks and dancing and all of that fun stuff. And then the big event itself is Saturday with 30 plus vendors, exhibitors of books, zines, storytelling, things that aren't necessarily straight in the canon of book, but kind of fit in there and have have been finagled in. Um, and then live printing will be screen printing six word memoirs on our print truck and doing a giant community installation. We'll have kid friendly events. It's all free. It's going to be barely controlled awesome chaos. <laughs> so. <laughs> that sounds
0: amazing. So for the listeners, talk a little bit about how Studio 3 came to be, right? Because you all are in a newer space. You started in a different place. Talk a little bit about your growth. Sure.
2: So we started, we'll be 10 in August, which oh. woo, is sort of a nonprofit milestone. Um, Um, We started right out of uh, VCU Arts as four women who had been studying printmaking and realized we got out of school. There was nowhere to do it. The equipment was expensive. So we went in on a small space together in, in Manchester at Plant Zero and shared equipment and bartended and waited tables and split the bills and outgrew that, moved to Main Street to a much larger space, about 3,000 square feet in 2010. Wow. Became a nonprofit then, started offering classes, really expanding our community outreach, collaborating with other nonprofits. Uh-huh. We got booted by the city for not having a CO, um, which was a mystery to us. Um, okay. What's a CO? A certificate of occupancy. So that's a fun thing that you need to have in Richmond that you're responsible for as a tenant, uh-huh. um, which 20-year-old art students don't typically know. And right. our landlord, was not, our rental agent was not particularly forthcoming, but we were there for four years before. Wow. Yeah, this information came about that it had been zoned for, I don't know, manufacturing as a Coca Cola plant in like 1950. And that was the last time it had been used
0: gotcha. legally.
2: Gotcha. So, so, surprise. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> so, I was about nine and a million months pregnant at that point. So I had my son, went on maternity leave, started looking for a new space. And that's where we found our space in Scott's Edition. So we did a capital campaign, moved over there in 2015, and then just expanded into the new space in October of 2017. So now we have, we went from four women and 400 square feet, and now we have 120 plus artists with 24 seven access. We've got 20 plus classes a month. We have a mobile print truck that goes to other nonprofits to local schools to festivals and it's it's growing and we're hoping to just expand the space and expand who's using the space consistently and make sure that it's a welcoming comfortable engaging environment for
0: all of richmond to be able to use very cool thanks ashley so cheyenne hey hi (laughs) tell us a little bit about what you do
3: So I wear many hats. Okay. Primarily, I'm a birth and postpartum doula. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for anyone who's not familiar with what a doula is, that is a non-medical support person. Primarily, I do educational support, emotional, mental support, physical support for people who are pregnant Mm -hmm. throughout their pregnancy, throughout labor and birth, and in the postpartum time as well. Nice, nice. I'm also a graphic designer and photographer. And so mainly, I think what is most relevant to this conversation is how those things combine. In my life, I run a magazine called Everyday Birth Magazine, which I created to fill a gap in in media, in the sort of birth world and community, Mm -hmm. where there really aren't many magazines in the birth world in general, but definitely not anything that focuses on inclusivity and diverse representation Mm -hmm. of families who are figuring out what it means to get pregnant, be pregnant in a healthy way, have a healthy, safe birth experience, empowering birth experience, and then, you know, have all of those positive things go on into the postpartum time.
0: So, you're a doula and you also run a magazine? Yes. Graphic designer with that and photographer, mentioned that? Yes. So, you're a writer as well?
3: Yeah, there's a little writing in there too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. So what I wanted to talk about today is the power of press, but also just creating your own space and that. And both of you all really kind of touched on how you did your own, whether that was with people, with by yourself and filling a gap. How did you all come to realize the need to create your own space?
3: For me, that's pretty easy. Once I got trained to be a doula in 2006, Nope, 2016. (laughs) What year is it? (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Once I got trained to be a doula in 2016, I immediately, I'm a very visual person, very sort of kinesthetic learner. I like having things in my hand and looking at things. And I wanted to provide my clients with that experience too, giving them things that practically communicate educational materials. And I started looking for that. And it was really difficult to find anything like that online. Um, And anything that I did find did not have people of color, did not have diverse families in it, did not have inclusive language. And so I thought I just wasn't finding it. You know, I thought it was out there and I just couldn't find it. Um, Surely
0: someone's doing this,
3: right? (laughs) um, But... I couldn't find it so I because I have the graphic design and sort of a little bit of artistic background I thought it would be quicker for me to just make some sheets myself than to keep going on this wild goose chase. So I started doing that and then other doulas in my community started seeing what I was doing and they were like, "Oh, that's really cool. Like mm-hmm. we haven't seen anything like that either." Someone encouraged me to post online to a doula group on Facebook and that's when I realized no one across the country was finding materials like that. Wow. So yeah, that's really what led me to, I, I started with doing illustrations and sort of infographic one sheets mm-hmm. through a business that I called The Educated Birth. And that sort of was the the preface to the magazine. Okay.
0: And The Educated Birth, that's the training materials, educational piece, obviously, that yes. you really just started mm-hmm. with. How did you start there? It was just creating your own? You exactly. To-
3: yeah. I just, you know, I know Adobe InDesign design and illustrator and all that good stuff and so I went into the programs that I was comfortable creating in and using valid resources mm-hmm. from my training that I had learned about to make things like how to choose your birth location wow. or you know things to know about having a lactation consultant mm-hmm. um, just really really approachable accessible bits of information because the other thing for me was I know I'm not the person who picks up a giant book at Barnes & Noble and reads it from cover to cover. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to speak to clients who are like me in that way, who might go and get it and use it as like a a resource to like go through the appendix and see what they can find sometimes. But really need something that's more bite size. Right as they're, you know, consulting with support people like a doula or their partner. Okay.
0: So everyday birth and educational birth people, those are pages people could follow and keep up. Yeah, with. Yeah.
3: So the educated birth that we have a website, theeducatedbirth.com, And you can find us on Instagram at the educated birth.
1: So keeping a magazine afloat is terribly difficult. How do you do it?
3: Yeah. So and, and if I can go back a little bit, the story behind the magazine is also that after I'd been doing the illustrations and the infographic sheets for about a year, I went to my own gynecologist's office for a check-in, and I was looking at magazines in the office, Mm -hmm. and I had the same problem with them that I was having when I was looking for educational birth materials. So that is what triggered in my mind, huh, what would this look like as a magazine? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Um,
3: and would people be into that? And I sort of assessed the community. I, I said to people online, like, hey, if I started this, do you guys think that would be a good idea? Would you use it? Right. Would you want it? People were like, yeah. Um, but people can say yeah and then not really invest in the thing. Mm-hmm. So part of, you know, I, I've been a solopreneur, I guess, for about three years and i started doing the magazine about two years in so i think part of it for me is that i i wear many hats i do many things so my my income is coming through many different sources. And I just kind of sat down, looked at numbers, and was like, realistically, how much time can I invest into this magazine Mm -hmm. financially right now, knowing that you know, at the outset, it's probably not going to bring in a sustainable amount of income for me. Magazines are really hard. And Mm -hmm. the cost of getting it printed and getting it printed well is high. And so I really sort of supplement some of the costs by doing other kinds of work. Until it either becomes big enough and sustainable enough that I don't have to do that, or it sort of shows that it's not something that the community needs, and then I can put that energy
1: somewhere else. And how can people support your magazine?
3: So everyday birth magazine it, we have a website, everydaybirth.com and same handle everyday birth.
0: Are you offering subscriptions?
3: Yes. Um, yeah. So we are offering, we just started offering subscriptions. I think the other sort of thing with a magazine is that it takes so much work <laughs> to put a magazine together.
2: Yeah.
3: And when I started, even the the sort of putting a subscription process together felt overwhelming. So I, you know, made it, printed it, and then sold individual copies and kind of left it at that. But this year in February, I launched the subscription option. So there are many different kinds of subscribers that someone could be. You can be just a digital subscriber. You can be a print subscriber who gets the next two issues of the magazine. We do two a year. Mm -hmm. Or you can be a subscriber who shares and gets a subscription for somebody else in your subscription, or you can be an advertiser or something like that. There are a
0: variety of levels. Awesome. Ashley, how did you come about to know that you had to create your own?
2: Yeah, well, Cheyenne, the notion of obstacles at the beginning being incredibly overwhelming, I feel like is so resonant when you're like, like nothing exists and I'm starting it and every day is scary. (laughs) (laughs) And the days are less scary now, which is encouraging. Um, I think uh, there's a a Neil Gaiman quote around like, if you know the one thing you're on earth to do, then do that thing. And Mm. if it's, you know, a, a mountain in the far distant you know, eyesight, just keep walking toward it. And I think for me, it was always art making like the alignment of art and community, like from the time that I was pretty much in high school, I knew that those were the two things that I was called toward. I didn't know how what that would manifest as necessarily. So the creating of the space was literally the lack of equipment, the lack of a space outside of, you know, VCU arts that has a beautiful print shop that has gobs of fancy things that young artists can't even fathom buying once you're out of school where you're not necessarily making paintings and generating millions of dollars your first year out of college or probably ever. Um, So creating that space was sort of a necessity to continue making work. But pretty soon after that, the work became less important than the space for okay. me. Um, and that wasn't true for everybody there, but that's kind of why I stayed on and became a staff person and I'm in the role that I'm in today because now creating the space and seeing how it's evolved and who is using the space is also always the next type of space creation. So I look back mm-hmm. at, you know, when we were on Main Street, there's a Christmas picture that we took with a goofy banner and it's literally a sea of white kids and a sea of straight white kids you know so looking back on that 5 years ago compared to the diversity of people coming into the space today and the, like you said the the openness of language and who is welcome and how people are interacting is like a space within the space so i think that that ongoing challenge of making sure you're cognizant of where the space is great where the space is limited and what you're doing to Address that is is kind of the the space now that I'm I'm occupying in my work.
0: Very cool. How are you doing with juggling the different hats that you wear? And what are some of those hats? So mom,
2: mom of two. So that's going really well. My daughter is two and a half and um, came into the bathroom while I was showering and poked my chest and asked, what's that? And I said, it's mommy's nipple. Uh And then about two days later, she stood at the top of the steps and yelled, mama, can you hear me? Listen. And I I was like, what? And she said, I have a nipple. (laughs) So that hat's going great. So good. It was very good. She's very (laughs) proud. She also thinks there's a freckle on her stomach that is also a nipple. So we're working on that. But um, (laughs) so that's fun. My son just turned five. So now he's making all the rules is Mm -hmm. what he's Mm -hmm. told us, which is not... Not true. Um, but we'll <laughs> let him think that. So that's that's one pretty big hat. Partner, I help my, my fiance with his business, which is building and home renovation, which is a whole thing. And then executive director of the studio is a lot of the boring stuff, you know, the admin, the bookkeeping. But it's a lot of the really exciting, like strategic community engagement. And I get to go into a space that's beautiful and full of light and people making amazing things every day. So it can feel overwhelming and stressful. But when I take a step back, I'm like, wow, this is a pretty cool existence to have. I'm on the Richmond 300 Advisory Council. So council updating the citywide master plan. So we're basically moving into working groups now on focus areas within the city. So I'll be working on the housing working group. And we're really focused on affordability of housing in Richmond because we we have a major major issues so that's pretty much the primary focus of the group
0: that's really great that you're part of that group i think someone that is in the nonprofit space as well as community space that has grown through in the city and had your own bumps in the road being able to provide your lens on that how did you end up saying this is where i want to be in this richmond 300 conversation how did you come about saying hey this could be me
2: you know i think it, it felt the most urgent and like the solution you know my background is in arts, but also my master's is in public administration and nonprofit management. So sort of understood at a surface level, you know, the the wider conversations, but I also think that like artistic background and sort of thinking and critique process felt like it could be helpful in the conversation rather than people who are working in it mm-hmm. every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now we're just getting started. I'm hoping that that's true and I can be helpful there.
0: So doing your work, can you talk a little bit about what you think racial equity enrichment means to you. And how do you make that happen or contribute to that?
3: Yeah, this is something that I think about a lot and talk about quite a lot, too. I think my conviction at this point is that it has to start or be centered or revolve in a large way around relationship. We have to be, you know, willing to get to know each other as individual people and hear each other's stories, where we're coming from, and humility, Mm -hmm. too, is a huge part of it. In order to address racial equity, you really have to feel like you're in community with the people that you're talking to, Mm -hmm. not just next door, but in something together. And I think that that develops most naturally and sort of comfortably when you have vulnerability mm. between each other and you just don't get that if you know each other on just a surface level. So it takes like a willingness to get open and deep with people with each other and to then because of that hear people speaking in tones that are uncomfortable to you mm. and saying things in ways that are is uncomfortable to you and also navigating when people make mistakes and being willing to stay on a road with them after they've made a mistake and not say you're out as long as there's a mutual willingness to stay on the road together. I think if people want to step off, then they step off. But that's where my conviction is right now at this point is that I see a lot of people sort of giving up on other people Mm -hmm. um, in the process as well as people just not being willing to, you know, Humility is a really, really hard thing. Right.
0: Can you talk about a little bit of what humility is?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think... In a nutshell, humility is saying I don't know everything. Mm. I'm not perfect. I think you know we're in a very resume-building culture where we want to be able to put something new on our resume. We approach racial equity and sort of cultural competency is a big phrase in the birth world in particular recently, and people want to put cultural competency on their resume. Oh wow! <laughs> and be like, I'm trained in it. I, I'm done. Like I'm here, and I think it's. It's not malicious at all. The intent is really wonderful, um, but that's just not how it works. And it doesn't set people up for success Mm -hmm. in building community with other people. Right. Um, So, yeah, humility is really just saying, I don't know everything. I'm going to mess up. I'm open to hearing how I've messed up so that I can learn how to do better, knowing that this is a journey. It's not. There's no real finish line here.
0: Yeah. So I sometimes on the side do cultural humility talks and trainings. And that's exactly what you said is what I might put on a PowerPoint slide, right? Is this lifelong commitment to learning other people and other cultures. Mm -hmm. It's a journey. It's the understanding you're never going to know everything. You're not going to be able to be confident about every culture and every person that you've ever been in touch with. But it's that humility of being able to step back and understand that this is a lifelong journey of learning. Ashley, what about racial equity within your work and your lens? So
2: you were nice enough to review that talk that I gave to the women's club <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know, a lot around learning and constant process, and the Maya Angelou quote of you know, do the best you can until you know better, and then when you know better, do better. So that that resonates so much the commitment to constantly learning and to the true discomfort of being wrong, whether intentionally or not, and then embracing that wrongness, you know, that incorrectness, whatever that is, and leaning into it and figuring out how to do better. So that, you know, coming from an organization that started as, you know, primarily white, primarily cisgender female, and having to look at that and say, like, how, how do we address this? Because clearly we're not creating a space that's attracting a community that looks like Richmond. Mm -hmm. So I think now the work is, it is so much about community and about interpersonal interactions and creating a space where people are human together they're collaborating they're having interactions and the the things that are not okay are the interactions that make people uncomfortable for their race for their gender for their sexuality for their you know their gender identity and being very intentional about spelling those things out within the space but also knowing that we've continuously have work to do
0: right i love in your studio the way you all have your restrooms Mm.
2: Yeah, so that was um we have a number of non-binary artists at the studio and with our expansion we added multi-stalled restrooms two of them Mm -hmm. um and the city makes you slap up a men's and a women's sign to pass your final inspection and then we took them down immediately and we called side by side richmond and we said hey we have these restrooms we don't want them to be male and female signs on the doors, should we put up a unicorn or a robot? And they were like, that's very stupid. Don't do that. (laughs) Um, And they said, just say what's in the restrooms. So the signs now say this restroom has sinks and stalls which it does. And so it's almost the equivalent to Everybody Poops, like the kid's yeah. book. You know, you're just like, <laughs> just go in. It's a bathroom and then wash your hands and leave. Um, so it gives some people pause, but then they go in and they use the restroom And they're fine. And for those who absolutely can't, we have single-stalled restrooms and we let them know. But we also ask, you know, when anybody rents the space for an event, that if they are putting up gendered restroom signs, that ours also stay up. Like, we do not want ours coming down because they're a learning moment. And most of our artists, our trans artists especially, have come to us and said, thank you. Like, this makes me feel safer working in this space and makes it a a non-issue for me to go to the bathroom, which it should be.
0: I appreciate and thank you for that sign because it it checks me every time of just noticing noticing the gender label in the bathrooms and it's a learning moment for me of just also being able to bring it up to other people and bathrooms and just an easy way to create that safer space.
1: In what ways if at all do you work to create safe spaces in the doula community?
3: so when i started the educated birth and everyday birth magazine i think when i started everything my frame of mind was more so on color and diversity in that sense and for me you know i'm a black woman i'm a light-skinned black woman i come from a family with many shades in all of our thanksgiving and christmas and reunion photos and i've always sort of wrestled and and thought about the fact that my experience is different than my sister's experience, is different than my other sister's experience, is different than my brother's because we have different hair textures, skin tones, and then also being male or female or cis or, you know, all those things. So I I was very much more so in just race when I started. And then as I developed the materials and the work, uh, I think it was about a year in that I had someone reach out to me and and I also did several different doula trainings throughout my career as a doula. So I did several doula trainings as well and it wasn't until the third doula training that I took that gender and sexuality and inclusivity on that level was addressed. Before that, however, I did have folks reaching out to me who had found my materials saying like, have you considered being more gender neutral with your language, who really appreciated what I was doing, but wanted me to expand or think about expanding further. And I really appreciated that because it wasn't on my in the front of my lens because it wasn't a part of my experience, but the ultimate mission of what I'm doing is to create these materials for everyone who's pregnant and everyone who's giving birth. And so gender inclusivity in the language is is necessary for that. So I did a big overhaul about a year in of the language. And then probably six months later, I had someone else reach out and say, oh, it could be better.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I imagine that's really difficult too, because People who give birth are biologically, well, actually, I don't, I mean, I don't know. They have vaginas. So how? Yeah.
3: So people who give birth just don't all identify as women. Right. And so, and even what people, how people sort of process or speak about the body parts that are required to carry a child and to give birth is, can be different. And so what I've said in my materials and when I rolled out, especially the second wave of gender inclusive language, you know, I said gender neutral language is not a rejection of female identifying folks. It is just an inclusion of everybody (laughs) Um, who, and it it just leaves that, that open so that I'm not interpreting for you this. I'm just giving you all the information that is relevant no matter how you identify. So yeah, I think that's kind of how I've addressed that. You know, I've gotten some disapproving comments. I'm sure everybody's super surprised to hear that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But I think for the most part, it was helpful for me to process it that way. And it's always even I'm a part of a doula collective as well, the Richmond Doula Project, um, and we talk about these issues a lot in our in our collective. And we are committed to using gender neutral language with our clients as well, and not assuming how people what pronouns are, how people identify. And it's one of those things where people who are cis or do identify with the you know sort of their sex and gender, they don't notice most of the time if. I'm using gender neutral language with them. You know, it's not something that I think when you're, and I, I've kind of talked about it this way too. When you are a minority in a certain way, you get like, you're, you get triggered by things differently than if you don't experience being a minority mm-hmm. in that area. So if you're, if everything has always been, yeah, I think, I think I said that right the first time.
0: It's almost like, If you've had to protect yourself and have this armor up and around certain language your entire life, and that's your learned experience of surviving certain spaces, Mm -hmm. you're more apt to notice those types of inclusive language and pick up on, on this kind of shift in language.
3: Yeah, I think, and it's like with the bathrooms too, you know, it's like for someone who has gone to gendered bathroom doors their whole life and it's not an issue for them, then they're they're not going to notice. And if suddenly it is replaced with something that is more acknowledging to the experience of someone who's had issues with those bathroom doors or the bathroom experience, like for that person who hasn't experienced that discrimination, it's like an eye-opening experience, but it's not impacting them negatively. It's actually opening their eyes to someone else's experience. Right. So I think in putting gender-neutral language into the materials that are, you know, being seen by people who identify in all these different ways, it's been that same kind of reaction and experience.
0: Yeah. I know we've talked about the bathrooms a a couple times, and I just... Some folks really just ask the questions, like, what's the big deal about the bathroom? And I'd like to share a quick story about my sister, who's a trans woman. And we were actually at our uncle's funeral and at their funeral home. We come from, this was our father's side, a very black, traditionally black family. We're at a church or on the way of the church. And My younger sister and I, who have always presented and identified as women, went to the bathroom and Austin, our middle sister, stayed outside just waiting for us. And when I came, when we came back out, I could look at her and she just looked really awkward. And um, she goes, will you? go to the bathroom with me. And it was just that moment, again, I realized I didn't invite her to go in the bathroom with me. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about that. And even in our own space of grieving and around family, she didn't feel comfortable in the bathroom because she looked over and it was very gender specific. So just those experiences that we think nothing of or go to the bathroom without ever questioning the way that's printed, the way that's presented, all -hmm. of that matters.
3: Yeah, I think it's also about normalizing. Yes. Too. I want the magazine and the materials to just help people understand everybody's different life experiences are normal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other thing, too, is, you know, part of the mission for me is people put people of color and people, you know, in different families and everything into things, but not always in a way that represents them authentically Mm -hmm. and sort of treats them with dignity and respect. It's, used as a marketing tool. Right. You know, and so normalizing and, and showing people and not even always showing people to make some sort of message like uh, can a trans birth worker just write an article about birth and it not be about being trans? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, and all of that kind of thing too, I think mm-hmm. is really important in actually building some equity into the the things that we do.
0: Agreed. So the word media has become pretty coded and I'd really love to hear you all's thoughts about what that means to you what does media mean to you
2: well I guess I come to it in some ways from you know my background in printmaking and I always I always think about printmaking as this incredibly democratic medium, you know, this historical, you know, we talk about movable type and the dissemination of information and the Gutenberg Bible and, you know, literacy coming from printmaking, which then resulted in historical schisms and religious chaos and all of these things but also you know print propaganda signs for protesting horrible things that are happening in our country right now that happen to be screen printed so that's one side of it that print media that ephemera that you know tangible information that's been created and put out into the world Mm -hmm. and then the other side of you know the major media, you know, and where we're looking at, and then media that we're creating ourselves that's happening in the community, like in this room, like our blogs, our podcasts, and how important that's becoming in sharing community stories and in actually telling truths that we might not hear otherwise. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah I mean, I think of all the different kinds of things that we consume, mm-hmm. and that are visual and written on a regular basis. I think for me in my life, I mean Instagram, Facebook, MySpace.
0: Did you say MySpace? I know,
3: going all the way back. <laughs> I'm I'm tracking back okay. throughout my life. <laughs> Not modern day, but like that was a big media Absolutely. thing at the time. Top um, eight, yeah. Yeah, I'll keep going back. Zanga, I oh, had a wow. Zanga a long time ago. Live Journal, mm-hmm. all those things. Mm-hmm. I think Tumblr. Oh my gosh, I was really into Tumblr for. <laughs> For a long time. And yeah, and I, I think the what became exciting in my life in interacting with media, because I think even going back further, I think of like the American Girl magazine and, like, <laughs> yes. and oh that stuff like that was, you know, media that I was totally consuming is how it became more interactive and I think especially for me when Tumblr became like a thing, which I think was around my sophomore year of college that I got on Tumblr, the idea of being followed by people mm. and having, you know, feeling like what you were saying was resonating with other people who were were not just like you, but far away and you might never see them. Right. And I don't think I've... No, I did. I made a friend through Tumblr. <laughs> Like an actual friend who I met in person, actually two. Oh, my
0: gosh. Tumblr making connections. Tumblr, man.
3: <laughs> but yeah, that concept of you can be a creator right. of media and have people really paying attention mm-hmm. and caring about what you say in your message right. has been really strong in sort of this, this time and with this, you know, sort of couple generations in a way that is really unique. Right.
0: And having something, a counter narrative to the mainstream media that we usually think about of the nightly news or the most prominent newspaper in the city. And there's other types of media that we can consume and choose to partake in and create. So you all are creating your own media, your own spaces. Can you talk a little bit more about the not so pretty things that still come up and doing your own and running your own currently?
3: I think uh, for me, just how how much I have to multitask to make it all work. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Which I I look forward to in the future it being less like that. (laughs) Keep telling Um, myself the same thing Cheyenne. (laughs) Yeah but you know I work part-time doing graphic design. I take on freelance clients. I still do birth work though this year I've been traveling so a little bit less and when I do birth work also it's hard. I just my family is like you're such a bleeding heart but you know the way that i i also feel very motivated by just conviction in my work mm-hmm. and so they're like with graphic design it's very cut and dry for me if you want me to design something for you you gotta pay me for that right, <laughs> like, right. it's not like life or death whether something happens <laughs> in terms of graphic design but with birth work if somebody is looking for someone to be there with them when they're having a child mm-hmm. then that can be life and death and right. having an advocate um even if it's not life and death it is trauma more versus less trauma or you know whatever and So that's something that I feel very committed to, you know, making it work as much as I can with making that service accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, you know, I think whenever anyone is pursuing the work that they want to do, they just have to sit down and sort of decide what you're willing to take on and not take on what's sustainable, what's reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so for me at this point, it's been a very difficult uh, journey of deciding how how much work I can do to compensate how much I want to be able to pour into the things that, you know, our society doesn't value as much. Yeah. And so it's harder to make an income off of that. And then, you know, with a magazine, too, I feel very strongly that my contributors should be paid. Mm. So, you know, I tell them, I can't pay you very much, right. but I will, do, I will pay you so that you know that I value your time and your skill and, and what you're offering. So, so yeah, I think that that has been a really big challenge for me. Yeah, but
0: still growing and looking forward to the day.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's, you were saying earlier how sometimes you step back and you're just like, this is a cool place to be. Yeah. And I do that a lot. It, it is a cool place to be. And where I am now is a big step up from where I was a year ago and where I was two years ago. Right. So, you know, I say it sort of as an encouragement in a way. Mm-hmm a realistic encouragement, right. <laughs> you know, I think it's when you're pursuing stuff, you don't want people to be too rose-colored glasses with you, but right. you don't want people to be, you know, sort of too harsh either. Yeah. And so for anyone who wants to do something like starting some sort of media project of your own because you really believe in the cause or, you know, what you're doing, then absolutely you can. Like, there's always a way to make a way. And I've had a lot of people also invest in donations towards what I'm doing to make things possible when they're really tight. Mm-hmm. But hmm I think that's the the non-rose colored encouragement that I would sort of have is like, it is really hard and you do have to, you know, juggle and balance. Ashley,
0: some of the unpretties.
2: Yeah, I um, talked to a group of high school teachers last night around arts and economics and like building a career in the arts and the same advice, like if you're talking to your students and they're thinking about this, like it's not an easy path to carve and it's not, something you can passively sit back and just, you know, do a couple things and hope mm-hmm. that everything will work out as an artist or as an entrepreneur. Right. But if you do work and you put in the work and, you know, invest of yourself and in your community, you get, you know, what you put into it, hopefully. And I think we are very fortunate to be at the point that we are. It is so much easier than it was mm-hmm. In 2012, in 28, in 2015, you know, like it's, it is easier. It is more complex. It's, it's more people. It's a lot of expectation management, which is one of the harder parts of my job just because of the community that we serve is growing, you know, 120 members, board members, thousands of students, staff volunteers, like all of these constituencies that were maybe one or two people right. five years ago and now are like, like, okay, which arm is going to fall off today in the tug of war? But that at the same time is kind of a reward in and of itself to have that many people kind of in in the, the community that we're working with, that there are expectations. And so I think taking that step back, being grateful, and then making time, like Cheyenne, I love your idea of like prioritizing what you need to do to make your life work Mm -hmm. and letting the like little stuff fall away because you can't, no matter how type A we all are in starting things and trying to do everything, Mm -hmm. you got to let it go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I will
3: add that bartering is an amazing thing mm. that I came to <laughs> deeply love and appreciate as a solopreneur. <laughs> I barter yes. with my yoga teacher.
0: Yeah.
3: I barter with my accountant.
0: <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So
3: that's a really valuable thing as well. And I encourage people to be creative. Just yes. be creative. Like you can, you can make it work for sure.
0: Love that. Love that. All right, ladies, so up next, it's time for What's Your Privilege? What's Your Privilege is a segment where we ask you all to just talk about what is your privilege that you see with the way that you show up in the world and how do you use that to make this place a better
2: one? I am a straight white lady, pretty comfortably middle class, depending on you know what the utility bill was that month. Um, <laughs> So that's certainly a privilege in today's world. And I think recognizing that, putting that out at the forefront and making sure that I am creating space not for myself to beat on my chest and yell but creating opportunities for community members to elevate their voices and creating
0: a space where that is the meaning of why we're there do you talk about yourself as a white lady in many rooms or identify that way very specifically
2: yes and increasingly i don't think two years ago that i did i think that 2016 you know women's march in dc where we looked around and were like oh hey white ladies how you doing um that was pretty eye-opening to realize. Um, and in the workshops that we hosted at Studio 23, we had, you know, probably five 600 people come through in the span of a few days that were not all ladies, but 90% white. Um, and that was a pretty clear signal that, you know, I needed to identify clearly as a white lady trying to make a space that wasn't just for other white ladies.
0: And that's pretty important in the former capital of the Confederacy, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheyenne?
3: Yeah. So I'm a straight, light-skinned black woman. And I also, I think um, a pretty, relating to that, uh, an area of privilege that I, I, definitely know that I have is that I can say something that another friend of mine says and they get labeled as aggressive mm-hmm. and like unapproachable and I'm like fine. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it's cool. Um, I will say after a certain amount of time in the same setting, that wears off.
0: Okay. Yeah.
3: Yep. <laughs> Once you've been saying,
0: the same bringing thing.
3: up issues yeah. again and again, then that kind of wears off. But, you know, it definitely makes a really big difference. Mm-hmm. And I also, you know, I went to college on a scholarship, and so I left without student loan debt. Wow! And I definitely recognize that as a privilege, uh, especially when I left my old job and went self-employed, mm-hmm. and was like, I don't have a lot of money to fall back on, but I don't have debt debt to pay off like that either. And that made it a little bit less overwhelming mm-hmm. to to approach that.
0: Gotcha. So the privilege I'm going to talk about this week is my resume and what that appears like when an employer is looking at that. It was obviously enough to put me in a place where I'm now working full-time at Initiatives of Change, talking narratives of racial equity. And this is work that folks, especially Black women, have been doing in Richmond for years. And I was privileged enough to have this job, not because I knew anyone, but I do believe it was just the way that my resume came across of my master's degree. That's a very formal way of education, the social work background, and I was able to name drop, honestly, in my cover letter. And that was because I had gotten in certain rooms with my master's degree and advocating in certain places. So knowing the right people, knowing the traditional way to write a resume, knowing what to put on that cover letter, because I've had that access was something that I do see as a privilege and has now put me in a place where I am traveling all over the world to talk about racial equity and to learn about different races. So I feel really privileged to have that opportunity to continue to grow my own lens and share that with folks, especially my hometown right here in Richmond. So to close it out, we wanna give a big shout out to the Richmond Book Art Fair that's going on this week. What are some ways that we can follow the Book Art Fair, Ashley?
2: Yeah, it's on our website, studio23.org. It's all spelled out t-w-o-t-h-r-e-e dot o-r-g um it's the main announcement bar so it's bright pink click on it you can get all the information there also follow our instagram which is at studio 23 again all spelled out but i won't spell it again uh, facebook same thing and the book art fair itself is saturday april 20th from 10 to 5 free open to everybody please come by hang out
0: check out make things get books talk to people Very cool. And Cheyenne, you've given us your handles, but maybe just one more time for the people.
3: Absolutely. The Educated Birth is at The Educated Birth on Instagram and at Everyday Birth for Everyday Birth Magazine.
0: Thank you, ladies, for joining us this week. Have a great one. Thank you. Yo. I'm really hyped for this panel tonight. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. So when Studio 23 reached out and was like, hey, Race Capital, do you want to hold a panel around the press and invite, Ashley was just like, invite who you think needs to be on the panel about press, marginalized communities. And we got together and we said, all right, let's stack it with women. Right. And so thinking about who to be on this panel, I just really always am thinking about women of color. I'm always thinking about black women to uplift that and also thinking about press in a different way because that's what Studio 23 is really also pushing. Yes, it's a book fair, but what else does that mean to be in press and to be in media? So I immediately thought of Dr. Sion Neely, who I work with every day over Issues of change. But I have been fangirling her for months because of her work in Accra and her work in Ghana has just, has really blown up in Africa and being the first of its kind. So I can't believe what a woman like her can create just multimedia and be able to support a community to now build an entire festival around multimedia, around street art, in a whole different continent. And Sian was born and raised here in Richmond. She went off to school, but I know that she's back now working with her family and working in Richmond. But I can't wait for you all to hear a little bit about more about her work tonight. And Maya Bodhi, who writes for Blavity, I have been following her now for probably a little bit over a year. I had noticed that she was really writing specifically around Black politics and keeping us informed there. And I've just seen her in really important spaces. So not just online, not just reading her work, I see her show up and document the voices that are important to me. So knowing that she was here in Richmond and we had been connecting through social media a bit, I was like, yes, let's put her in front of a mic and hear about what she's doing and digital journalism as well over at Blavity. Also, Cheyenne Varner. Cheyenne is actually the creative genius of our logo.
1: Oh, thank you, Cheyenne. (laughs) Thanks, Cheyenne.
0: Yeah, I meant to say that earlier in the interview, but uh, Cheyenne's work pops up everywhere in Richmond. You may not even know when you've seen that work, but she works so hard, as you all heard, to really get those messages out there. So she may be small in size, but she is mighty in content and messaging. So I'm so thankful for her. And then finally, Francesca, right? When we're talking about press, when we're talking about Truce. I always think about Fran and her voice and the way that she empowers me every day. She empowers this station. She's empowering Richmond, especially with her work through RVA Dirt, Municipal Mania, and what she's been doing for our city and our region and voter registration and especially Black organizing. Fran has is deeply rooted in that. And going door to door, I think, in passing out information and materials, this is also just part of this media and that press. So I'm really excited about this panel. We've got Fran Cheska Lee Davis, Cheyenne Varner, Maya Bodie, and Dr. Sion Neely coming at y'all tonight. I'll be moderating the event over at Studio 23. And like I said, I'm just really thankful for this space that's being made over at Studio 23.
1: And you know, one thing I just want to point out in the vein of Making Your Own Space is that everybody in some way or another, everyone you've mentioned, everyone we interviewed is showing up. Yeah. And that's a really important part of carving out a space for you within a community. Right. You have to be there. Social media is only one part of it. Right. And like
0: you said, I, I couldn't get those followers. I couldn't get people to buy into me if I wasn't showing up in person. And that's what matters. So tonight we'll be showing up in the community over at Studio 23 to continue to amplify these voices. 6 to 8 p.m. See y'all tonight. This is Race Capital. Laters. I'm from the on, <laughs> the out, the sea, H- the age, the end.